We're about to enter into something I think is really exciting, especially this time of year. I've wanted to do it for a couple of years now. It's a series on uh, reconciliation, um, particularly related to um, all different kinds of relationships in our lives. I think it's a fitting time of year coming out of holidays. Um, for a lot of people, that's a time of seeing relationships that aren't quite where you might hope that they would be. And so what does it mean uh, to apply the gospel to all of that? That starts up next week, um, but because it's New Year's week, we're doing a series basically, or just like a one-week message basically on um, change and resolutions and what that all looks like from a Christian perspective. And we're looking at the the New Testament letter of Romans, and uh, Karen is our reader. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Through verse 2. This is God's word. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Our God of grace, we ask now that amidst all the changes in our world and in our lives from year to year, that your word, that your voice, that your presence in our life and that your effect in our life would be unchanging and that there would be a, there would be a consistency of grace that we would encounter more and more as we approach you. We come from all different varieties of mess and fragmentation and brokenness, Um, sometimes more acutely aware of that around the holidays and the new year, Uh, but sometimes also just filled with more joy. So I pray that wherever we find ourselves coming from today, that you would meet us with your grace Uh, in such a way that our lives would be able to be transformed in a lasting way, in a way that is real, in a way that, that we know that even though we're more of a mess than we want to admit, that we know now and we live in the reality that you love us more than we imagine through Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So uh, it's definitely uh, you know resolution time, and it's time to talk about resolutions. And uh, resolutions have come up in the last few days in different conversations, um, and it's all about change, right? Um, do we have any people doing? I won't make you share, but do you, anybody doing resolutions? Anybody the resolution type? Some some tentative hands. Um, cool. Uh, I I definitely do the resolution thing. Um, so this year. Um, this year, one of mine is to keep my smartphone, I have a smartphone, and to keep it out of reach when I'm driving, which, if you're like my wife, the, her response was, um, oh, pastor, so this year you're going to obey the law? <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, so, whatever. <laughs> yes, I'm going to try this year, I'm gonna, but I've already failed once or twice, so. Uh, but actually, so looking things up, like a third of people who do resolutions... Um, actually choose something, this won't surprise you, we choose something health-related, and usually that, um, usually that comes down to something 
appearance or, or weight, weight loss related. Um, because, of course, we're living in an extremely uh, image-saturated, image-focused uh, culture. And that, you know, so that sort of comes up in one-third of us choosing this. And then what I found extremely interesting and ironic this year is that this study comes out. Um, basically, the headline is, Being Overweight is Associated with Lower Risk of Death. Um, and, of course, there's some nuances to that, but it's basically, hey, fatter might be better than skinnier, you know? And in a sense, America collectively says, all right, you know, <laughs> yay. And, and this is what's amazing about this headline is that this came out, I'm not kidding, this came out, you, a lot of you know this, you've, you've reposted on Facebook and so forth. It came out on January 1. The article that I'm pulling it from is like, a, um, is like from a research journal Posting and it was like January 1, 3 p.m. And I'm imagining the person who had some, some weight or, or food-related New Year's resolution getting to about 3 o'clock that day and going, I'm done, all right. That was, that was hard. That was a hard two-thirds of a day, and um, this proves that I'm calling it quits. Um, I just thought that was really funny. Um, and I, thought I kind of also kind of wondered cynically if maybe that study was sponsored and paid for by... Kentucky Fried Chicken or something. I, I don't know. Um, or the bacon industry. Um, but So then I continue to dig around. I continue to look further. And I, I'm curious about success rate. And maybe you've looked this up as well. But basically, I, I wish you luck with your New Year's resolution because those of us who are optimistic about these kinds of things and go try to make a resolution, you have an 88% chance, along with me, an 88% chance of failing. So the odds are stacked against us. There's a few things you can do to make your odds better. Um, there's some gender rules here. Like for men, if you make it, they've found if men make a smaller goal, like incremental goals that are manageable, then it becomes, you become 22% more likely to follow through on your resolution. Uh, for women, um, they found that if you share publicly with other people your goal, um, or your resolution, then you're 10% more likely. And it, overall, in general, any peer collaboration improves your ability to follow through on a new resolution. And so there you have there your tips. Should I just say amen and <laughs> set, you, set you free? Some of you suspect I have something else to say. Um, basically, what I want to say is that we have a problem, don't we? we when you think about it, in, in terms of change, we have a problem. We have a, a dilemma here. Because a lot of us, even if you didn't make a resolution, you're part of a, a, lot of, a lot of us, most of the time, believe in change and believe that we can turn a corner and believe that we can um, chart a new course and follow a new path. We, we think we can improve ourselves. But it turns out it's incredibly difficult to do and to do it in a lasting way. And so I think it can lead to, um, I mean, I've definitely gotten in conversation some cynicism about not only resolutions, but I've, in life in general, I've gotten cynicism about change in general. And you don't find that cynicism in the Bible. The Bible is adamant and tenaciously uh, vehement that change is right around the corner, that you can expect change, that you will change, and that you will change in a beautiful kind of a way. It's, a, it's 
you see it right here in this passage when the Apostle Paul, as he's writing, is saying things like, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He, he believes in transformation, in life change, in true, meaningful change. And he's, he's not alone. It's throughout the pages of Scripture. So how, how does it happen? What's the key? What's the difference? And the, the key, not surprisingly, is right here in this passage. The key, the linchpin of Christian change is what we're going to look at today. It's what I want you to consider setting your sights on in 2013. It's in verse 1. It's right away in the phrase, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. There's a recipe for Christian change, and the secret ingredient is having, your, having it be rooted in God's mercy. So Christian change doesn't just kind of float around um, as this sort of nebulous thing that you can just kind of suddenly grab hold of and implement. Christian change has a, has a rooting, it has a foundation on which change comes out of, the fruit of change grows out of. That's what we're going to look at. And really, so as somebody's exploring Jesus, exploring the Christian faith, and beginning to um, progress in understanding what this is all about, um, there begins to usually be um, an element in one's life of, of really wanting to connect more with what I'm calling God's mercy and what this text calls God's mercy. And, and really a desire develops. Maybe there's a little bit of a taste of what God's mercy is or an intrigue by what it is. And so you, there begins to be this desire to figure it out and to have it more central in your life, which is what this text is suggesting, that in all of your ch- change, because the Apostle Paul is about to go into change in life and, and, and how you live, but he starts with this, in view of God's mercy. So, so naturally a, a Christian or someone who's pursuing the Christian faith is, is wanting to get more of this into their life. The first thing that we have to do is to make room for it. And the way you make room for it is by resolving to identify and reject the unmerciful faith that's a part of your life, the unmerciful messages, the unmerciful outlook. So really this is like a two-part thing of, of out with the unmercy and in with the mercy. So first of all, how do, Will you in 2013, will you begin to identify and reject the unmerciful solutions uh, in your spiritual outlook? Often someone will make a New Year's resolution, like myself or anyone else. You'll make a resolution, and then the next year you'll make another New Year's resolution. And then the next year you'll make another New Year's resolution. So one year it might be finances. The next year it might be um, dating. The next year it might be um, um, health and beauty. But So you've got all these. And they're all, they all seem so different. They seem like, oh, this, this is the year about this. But what's, what's actually happening, and the, why, the reason why often these attempts uh, bear no fruit and reach no place that is truly satisfying like you hoped it would be, is because there's actually, in every single one of those resolutions, the same premise. And what really needs to happen is you need to change the premise in the new year. And the premise basically goes like this. My life wholeness, my spiritual wholeness, depends on my inner resources. That's 
an unmerciful solution. That's an unmerciful outlook that you and I try to live from all the time. But it's not mercy. And it's actually, the Bible shows over and over again that this approach is actually incapable of the sort of lasting, satisfying change that your heart is longing for. And there's different versions of this. So you've got like, you've got kind of the church version of my wholeness depends on my inner resources. And you've also got sort of the the mainstream culture kind of version. Now, I was reading um, the Reformation theologian from the 16th century. I was reading John Calvin's um, discussion about this scripture text this week, and I found him. I was also reading a little bit of Martin Luther, um, who I'll mention in a second. But but these guys seem to really resonate and understand these dynamics a lot better than I did, and they put words to things that I just loved. And so John Calvin talks about how in churches, so this is the church's version of Depend on your inner resources. He says this. Well, a lot of times what churches try to do is to extort by terror some sort of forced obedience. That's pretty strong words. Um, and yet, a lot of you resonate with that. Maybe you wouldn't have gone that extreme with it. Maybe you would have. In fact, some of you, I know some of you, some of you would have. But, um, but many of you would say, oh, yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of what it is. So this is, this, is what, this is a sense you might get in church of, on the bottom line, when leaders in a church believe that your wholeness is in the end going to depend on your own inner resources, then the, the best we can do is try to drum up. Drum, drum up the obedience. Drum up the following. Drum up the inner resources so that you might finally measure up. And that's over and over and over again. And so what Martin Luther called that, what he said that is, is like a superstructure that is built on no foundation. So you've got the church version, which some of you might be familiar with. You've also got, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, the more mainstream kind of cultural version. Maybe if you're a member of an athletic club, in, in the locker room there's inspirational posters on the wall or in the hallways. One of those that gets passed around that I've seen is um, a great picture of our cultural version of depending on your inner resources for spiritual wholeness. So you have the, you're looking at the back of a cute little orange kitten, and the little, cute little orange kitten is looking in a mirror. Some of you remember uh, Stuart Smalley. It reminds me of that from Saturday Night Live, looking in the mirror and saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. So the kitten is doing this, looking in the mirror, and what's looking back at the cute little orange kitten? A full-grown male lion. And so the message goes something like, don't let everyone else, you know, how does it go? Something like, don't let everyone else tell you who you, who you are, you know? Um, don't be, I think I even wrote it down here somewhere. Don't, uh, don't let others define you. There you go. Don't let others define you, something like that. And that, maybe that maybe you have that on your on your ceiling above your bed. And so I'm sorry if if I'm getting into some personal territory for you here. I'm not going to really bash it. I just want to point out one of the obvious things I think that as you look at it um, is that as I look at that I say, well, can a kitten be a lion? I mean, the kitten does a kitten actually have the inner resources to be a lion? Mm, I'm going to say no. You know, in in a sense, so the kitten, the little kitten can't. No matter how the kitten drums up the, the, his inner resources, that kitten can't become a, a male lion. 
And in a sense, in one way or another, um, we do that all the time. We, att- we imagine that that's how things are going to go. That if we just kind of dig deep enough, if you believe in yourself enough, then you can be whatever you want to be. You can satisfy your deepest hopes. So churches basically say, obey or else. And you fill in the blank with or else. And culture says, believe in yourself. Um, you can be a lion. But it's basically the same thing. It's a philosophy, a premise underneath that says, my spiritual wholeness depends on and ends with, and is, it's all riding on my inner resources. That's an extremely unmerciful outlook. As gracious as it sounds to believe I might be a lion, I'm not. I can't be. It's actually unmerciful, and, it's, and it can be dangerous, spiritually speaking. So that's my challenge to you, is that in 2013, that you would look at, basically you'd ask the question, how am I operating on an ungracious foundation? Where is the unmercy and the ungrace in your outlook and in your attempt to make life the way you want life to look? And, you know, you're going to have a different variety than the ones I mentioned and the ones I have, but somewhere in there, there's ungracious, unmerciful messages that are driving a lot of your desires and your longings for change. Will you identify them and reject them this year? And maybe even in community, especially like if you're in a community pod or if you join Dive, that would you develop a sort of a language and an ability to spot and identify and say, that's an unmerciful underlying premise that I've been living with, and I need to push it aside and look for mercy to take its place. If you can even begin to identify it, if you can even begin to identify this kind of stuff in your life, then you're making room for mercy. Then you're, in a sense, you're loosening up, because unmerciful solutions, they try to root themselves in our lives, and you're beginning to just loosen up the roots so that they can be pulled out and something else can be planted in. And then all of your change, all of your transformation can flow out of what we read in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Romans, in view of God's mercy. So that's the second point, is resolve in 2013 to root your life in God's mercy. Um, Why is the Bible so convinced? You might be asking, how can the Bible be so sure that this, this amazing kind of lasting solid change can really happen? Um, if, if we plant our life, if we, we live this whole year in view of God's mercy, how can the Bible be really sure? I mean, how does that even work? Um, the answer is, basically, the Bible in the book of Romans is really good at this. The Bible's message is about, well, basically tells us that God has chosen, despite our failure to follow through on our resolutions with God, God has resolved to be in solidarity with us. So just think about that when you think about your life and how you're going to live and what the next step is and what do I do next and how do I live and how do I improve. How do you approach that differently if you know that the God of the universe, when you didn't deserve it, moved towards you and decided to be in solidarity with you? Um. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing in verse 12 here, he's just spent um, he's just spent 11 chapters, basically, telling the story of what we talk about as the gospel. 
in what you might talk about as that solidarity story, that story of God resolving and finding a way through Jesus and eventually through Jesus on the cross to create that final union and and definitive solidarity between us and him that none of your uh, flakiness with resolutions can, can mess up. It's done. He's resolved to be in solidarity with you and me as broken people. That's chapters 1 through 11. He hasn't really gotten into, okay, how to live, how to be, how to... This whole section so far has been God's mercy. And he's, so he summarizes as he, he's turning, he's pivoting here and saying, okay, this is a letter for early churches as they're trying to figure out how to live. So now that we've got that groundwork laid, now let's talk about you know, what's, what to look at, how to think about living in the Christian life. But wh- how he sets it up is, okay, I urge you now, in view of God's mercy, it all, I mean, this was all so central and important that he lays this whole story out of the mercy of God and that any desire you have to change or to live for God or to be a better person or to please God, all of it must constantly flow out of the mercy of God, not the other way around. So you ask yourself, is my approach of change and obedience in life, is it I obey in order to get God's acceptance? Or am I more the biblical route, the biblical order of I'm accepted by God's solidarity through the cross of Jesus so that in response, I desire to obey. Obedience flows out. And this is why I would say saturate your life in 2013 as much as possible. I think that's what Paul wants his readers to do. That's what I want you to do. Saturate your life in 2013 in God's mercy in whatever way you can get closer to this message and to this knowledge that he has decided and determined to be in solidarity with you. And the risk was high, but he took it. Um, I love the way um, John Calvin, as I was reading him, as he talks about this. So he you know, kind of describes how churches try to drum up through terror uh, obedience, and then he turns and says, but basically the Bible here is alluring us, he says, by the sweetness of that favor by which our salvation is effected. You know John Calvin could talk that poetically, did you? Alluring us by the sweetness of that favor by which salvation is effected. That's what the Bible's trying to do. The Bible's a sort, a place to connect with God's mercy. And this is, what, this is basically what he also says. He says that Christian change is that after having found a father so kind and bountiful, after having found a father so kind and bountiful, we strive in our turn to dedicate ourselves wholly to him. See how different that is from drumming up obedience through some kind of fear? Having found a father so kind and... Have you found... Is this, is this your picture of God? Maybe in 2013 this needs to be your goal. To, to try to see, this, to see God's favor as sweet. To come to the end of the year and say, I know what the sweetness of God's favor is by which my salvation is affected. I have found a father so kind and bountiful. One, um, I mean, it's a very different way of change happening. One author that I read put it this way, that it's basically simply the gospel works as the expulsive power of a new affection in your life. 
The gospel is an expulsive power of a new affection in your life. In other words, it's from inside out. It's a new, it's when you know God's mercy, God's affection is in you, it, it moves out and it, and it produces change and it kind of just pushes other affections out because usually our change involves desires and affections we have for things that uh, are having results that we're not extremely excited about. And so we try to put barriers in and we try to put new behaviors in and we try to get all this stuff in and the expulsive power of a new affection is when you, your eyes are on God's mercy and when you experience and encounter that, it just, just moves out and it happens from within. So think of uh, this past year, maybe these past few days, maybe today, but imagine a situation where, or picture a situation where you were spontaneously unmerciful. And it's not pleasant, sorry. Some of you have, maybe your resolution is to forget the past, and I'm just bringing it up. But, but just, you know, picture, you, you know what I'm talking about. In, in spontaneous situations, it's much more difficult to be merciful. In, you know, if all my life was premeditated, I'd be an amazing person. But unfortunately, most of life is spontaneous, and so I've got all these blunders and all these unmerciful things, ways that I react to things. Can you think of a situation where in the spontaneous, uh, in, spontane- in the spontaneity of life, you just were so unmerciful. You know, someone crossed your path at just the wrong time, or someone pushed a button, or um, someone deliberately did some things. Um, how long did it take you to get to the point of realizing that that was unmerciful or ungracious? Did it take you until now, until I asked you about it? Or maybe, you know, maybe it took you like a few minutes or maybe it took you a day. In automobile, in automobile land, car people, they talk about acceleration and zero to 60 and how many seconds. I'm sure you've heard of this, zero to, you know, zero to 60. So I looked up a couple, uh, the fastest and the slowest. The fastest acceleration rate, zero to 60. The 2002 Lingenfelter Chevrolet Corvette That's number one. And it's 0 to 60. Who's daring to call me in the middle of my message? And you're asking, why do you have your phone on? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, 2002 Lingenfelter Chevrolet Corvette, 0 to 60 in t- in 1.97 seconds. I can't even imagine that. 2002 Dodge Viper. Hennessy Venom 1000 TT, 0 to 60 in 2.2 seconds. 0 miles per hour to 60 miles per hour in 2.2 seconds. The slowest, the 79 Volkswagen Rabbit. (laughs) Bit of a misnomer, don't you think? Uh, Diesel version is 0 to 60 in 21.2 seconds. I want to see those two going up against each other. That would be pretty amazing. Or the 81 Cadillac Seville diesel, 0 to 60 in 20.9 seconds. So what's your grace acceleration rate? How long does it take you to get from zero to grace in spontaneous moments in your life? And what would it look like to cut that down if you're like a Volkswagen rabbit right now, to cut that down to two from 20? Or maybe just this year, 20 to 18 or maybe 17, what would it look like? The Bible's basically saying, root your life in God's mercy. Look at, set up in your life this year 
that you will be participating in, you will be viewing, you will be seeing, you will be reading, you will be engaging in the story of God's mercy, of his solidarity with you. And it will naturally happen. Your zero to grace acceleration rate will get better if you do that. That's the Bible's promise, basically. So that in some, most instances, it'll basically just mean this, that you realize your need to apologize sooner than you used to. But in some cases, once in a while, it'll also mean that you, and you'll be amazed and thrilled when it happens, that you'll spontaneously react with mercy in a situation where before you would have been unmerciful. Let's hope that happens in this year. Um, and let's pray together. Our gracious God, may we know your grace so much and may we see your grace and mercy this much, so much this year that you help us make the colossal shift from drawing up from our inner resources to knowing that those end and where they end, you meet us on the cross and that your resources don't end. Um, may each of us encounter your mercy this year in such a way that we will incrementally um, find more wholeness in our life by knowing you and knowing your grace more. We pray in Christ's name, amen.